Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. Okay, I have your job application here in front of me, Mr. How do I say your last name? Boaty McRileyface. And why do you want a job as a server here at International House of Falafel? Well, I just think it's time for a mid-career switch. I'm looking to do something new and meaningful with my life, and I love falafel. It's part of my daily personal hygiene routine. We'll circle back to that. Um... I have to say, there's something very familiar about you. Did you always have a mustache and a big plastic nose and, and glasses without lenses in them? Since college. On the form where it says reason for leaving your last position, you wrote war against Easter? You bet I did. There's a war in this country and believers like me, people who stood up for Jesus and the bunny, we're wounded veterans. I said to myself, Billy, I mean, Bodie, Billy Bodie, Billy, Bodie Bill McRiley face, it's time to stand up and charge the hill. You'd be hiring a wounded veteran. Oh, wow. Where were you wounded? In my basket. Your, your what? My Easter basket. Mr. McRiley face, do you think you could get along well with all of our customers? Why not? There's no difference between the Ku Klux Klan and Ariana Huffington. Mm, interesting answer. Um, I want to come back to the idea that falafel is part of your daily hygiene. I think it could be part of our daily hygiene. You rub me with it. I rub you with it. It's a happy workplace. That's not really how falafel works. Why don't we wrap this interview up? Okay. Why don't you shut up? In fact, everybody shut up up. Maybe I should go to work for the International House of Shut Up, where they sell shut up juice and zip it burgers. Sounds like a great idea because it's time for the nose to talk about this week. And now he tore apart all his Ikea furniture looking for the meatballs. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, where do they hide them? Where are they? Um, I want those meatballs. We may, we may be talking about the meatballs. We will be talking about the meatballs a little bit later, but we're going to begin by talking about Bill O'Reilly, um, who actually did on one occasion say there is no difference between the Ku Klux Klan and Arianna Huffington, among the many pearls that have spilled from Bill O'Reilly's mouth over the years. Um, we'll also be talking about um, Melania Trump's sad and lonely Instagram account. That's like my favorite topic today. I just can't stop looking at it. Anyway. Um, I've had several friends post about it since really? we started talking about oh, okay, it. Yeah. Good. Mm -hmm. So uh, the voice that you just heard, that's the voice of Teresa Kramer, a writer and editor of eContent Magazine, founding editor of The Cut, an online magazine for gruntled and disgruntled young but aging adults of Connecticut. <laughs> uh, James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, where I was yesterday watching Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. The, 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 so, I mean, is, it, is it a simulcast or is it just like just they just do it or something? It's a it's a live cast, they call it. It was, it was like that. 
that was live from that London. was happening at the old Vic. That was while happening we were at the old Vic uh, at that time. Yes, I'm even more impressed. All right, so anyway, we're watching that with Daniel Radcliffe, and then this other guy who's not Daniel Radcliffe, but who's actually sort of better. But he'll always be the guy who's not Daniel Radcliffe. Um, and uh, Kate Russian's joining us, Pushcart Prize nominated poet. Editor, writer, and a teaching artist for uh, the Connecticut Humanities. Well, we all know that um, that Bill O'Reilly is uh, waving uh, a goodbye to his time at Fox News. He's waving goodbye with twenty-five million dollars in payout uh, in his hands, uh, and Fox News has also paid thirteen million dollars to settle sexual harassment cases against him. I think it was uh, Stephen Colbert who pointed out that Bill O'Reilly was getting twice as much as the people he harassed which meant possibly that he might have harassed himself too. Um, there's many things to say about this. Although, and James, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, for I think for a long time, we looked at Fox News as kind of this castle with a moat, right? And that they were maybe doing a lot of things uh, in that castle that uh, you and I and everybody else here, uh, Kate and Teresa, might not have cared for. But that didn't matter because they were in their castle. They had their moat, you know, and, and so that kingdom could go on undisturbed, supported by the people who, in fact, were glad that the castle existed. And there is now kind of a breaching of the walls, you know, and it's not even just Bill O'Reilly. I mean, in, in short order, Megyn Kelly and Gretchen Carlson and Greta Van Susteren have all gone out. Roger Ailes himself has been pushed out for basically the same reason as O'Reilly. So I don't know. What changed? Well, I think that, that initially, I think you had the pressure of an ideologue, uh, meaning Rupert Murdoch, who wanted to create Fox News and saw it as an opportunity also to make a lot of money. Um, I mean, his assault on the British press, for example, over the past 40 years was a matter of discovering that he could sell a lot of newspapers with nude photographs of women and that he could have a sensationalist a sensationalist clientele that would be very attractive to advertisers, and he made a lot of money there. And I think that what is happening now uh, is obviously he's aging out of actually running things. And his sons, I think, are much more pragmatic about the money to be made. And there's the issue of 20th Century Fox as well, 21st Century Fox uh, now that owns it, um, is really I think there's more people there who are actually concerned about the money. And um, they actually see it as being something that has changed. Whether the ideology behind it will change, I, it's hard to tell. Um, I mean, they saw an opening and they took it. And it happened to be that if you aim at a, 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 a with with an aggressive and dismissive and disrespectful band of hosts and people who ridicule stuff that you know makes uh, it, it it makes a contrast and it makes a show really and it's not really about journalism it's about creating a stir and it made a lot of money for a lot of uh, uh, for a long time but i have to say i i mean that remark that stephen colbert made about you know he's getting twice as much as the people who who he uh, who sued him um you have to really look at this and think at just how much money is being made at Fox, really, that, that, that I haven't looked at the figures. But if they can afford to pay this man $25 million, this man who's really been, you know, he might have been at the top of his game, but he also had cost them a lot in terms of liability, which I don't know. I, I, I think it's kind of a turning point, and you're going to see probably 
um, a, a somewhat of a change. The interesting thing will be to see Tucker Carlson, who I think is every bit as scurrilous as Bill mm-hmm. O'Reilly in terms of his 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 demeaning of individuals and his behavior. I think it'll be interesting to see whether he follows the same route. That'll be the litmus test, I think. Well, Kate, I mean, uh, there's so much, uh, so many ways to unpack this, and I I, I want to hear what how all of you want to do this. But um, I, first of all, I want to say that I m- my paths and Bill O'Reilly's paths have crossed 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 numerous times, uh, going way back to the 1980s when he worked here in Hartford. He worked here at WFSB, where he was already a bully in a place that was maybe a little bit less constructed to accommodate uh, somebody like him, which is maybe one reason he didn't last there all that long. But I think there was this sense. Even then, uh, that if you had this somewhat bullying, sociopathic, blustering, um, arrogant, posturing quality to you, that the media maybe was a place where you could go and essentially hide in plain sight. Um, that you know, if you could tailor it the right way, if you could make it part of your on-screen persona, you know, that there was a, a market for all that. Um, and, and there are other people like O'Reilly. O'Reilly might be the fullest expression of that particular style, but there's lots of other people who've done it. It seems what happened this time was that, according to a lot of the coverage, the advertisers were starting to ask themselves questions about this. And I wonder if that's – I mean, well, I, why do you think that was? Well, I think it in part speaks to the uh, power of social media. Uh, you know, I've been listening to this kind of stuff on – Uh, conservative talk radio since I was a kid. Uh, I think what makes a big difference today is that uh, people were speaking out and speaking up or making contact with each other through social media and then they're making their voices heard to the advertisers through the social media. I think the bottom line was money. I think that was all all that it was about really that, that really pushed things that the advertisers no longer thought it was to their advantage to be associated with Bill O'Reilly, people like Mercedes and Aleve and those kinds of advertisers. And they, they walked away. You know, when I said the thing about Mercedes, though, uh, Teresa, I was also, also thinking this might be also a reflection of the burgeoning economic power of women. Um, women are increasingly, I mean, not that there aren't big pay disparities and stuff like that, but there are also kind of macro trends that indicate that, you know, women are going to be more employed, more employable uh, than men. The notion that you could have a serial misogynist and a serial harasser in this position of responsibility and then tie Mercedes or, or any other kind of high-end brand. Women do a lot of shopping. Women Women spend a lot of money. You know, this may be also a recognition of women. Yeah, uh, I was thinking the same thing. And and I was kind of wondering because I've literally never seen an episode of The O'Reilly Factor. So I'm like, who are the advertisers? And you guys just told me Mercedes and Aleve, right? And I was thinking, you know, it can't be... it can't be very female-focused brands that are advertising on this show, right? So, but it is these much larger overarching brands where um, the women are making the decision. If it, you know, it's more often than not, it's going to be the woman going out and buying the pain reliever. And if it's between Aleve and Advil, because Advil doesn't doesn't uh, advertise on the O'Reilly factor, well, then Aleve's going to lose out on some money. But it's also I'm also wondering why this is the thing that makes them care, right? But you know, O'Reilly says plenty of horrible things on a daily basis that well, you know should be offending women. But in this case, if you're a woman who was maybe a fan of the O'Reilly Factor before, and 
he's ostensibly, I mean, these are women who work with him on these shows. So while we may know that those people don't necessarily agree with him and they're just there for the paycheck, in theory, if you like the show, you think that the women who work there maybe agree with you as well and they're being subjected to this thing. And so maybe you feel a bit more of a connection with them than you would than with the women who O'Reilly attacks on a regular basis. Um. I'm also I, I want to talk a little bit about O'Reilly's pose, and I realize that this panel probably didn't consume a lot of episodes of the O'Reilly Factor. I don't know if anybody's up a little higher than Teresa's zero, but um, but I think we know what his pose is anyway. I suppose for a long time was you know kind of a voice on the right, but not exclusively a voice on the right. In fact, one of the things James that he attempted to to say about himself or a way in which he attempted to position himself is this kind of ruthlessly uh, rigorous independent. Uh, He often would claim he was a registered independent voter. Mike Pesca, uh, when he was working for On the Media, fact-checked that. It wasn't true. He'd been a registered Republican for many election cycles, uh, at which point O'Reilly said that there'd been some mistake in his registering at Nassau in Nassau County or wherever he was living at that point. And and then Pesca proved that, no, like for a lot of election cycles, he voted Republican. You voted as a Republican. But that was sort of the idea, right? That, yeah, Eileen, right, I have these ideas, but but I'm also kind of – I'm more committed to the truth than I am to anything else. You know, there was this whole no spin uh, thing that was part of his brand. Um, and, and to me, that's the thing – the other thing that seems to have maybe – been unsustainable. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I also I haven't really thought this through very well. I'm kind of wondering whether the whether Trump has almost kind of eclipsed O'Reilly somehow, uh, you know? Well, I think I think it's unsustainable for a reason that it's false and to establish something <laughs> called the no spin zone when you're doing exactly the opposite. Mm. I mean, that comes from a committee at Fox who probably thought this is where you need to be placed in the market. And you can get away with it because I think there are some people who are very gullible about stuff like that. It's like saying, um, the oh, uh, fair and balanced news, for example, and then do exactly the opposite. That there's a lot of people who will take a long time to figure out that maybe that's not the case. But if you do it with a certain amount of money, a large amount of money, and you put ads everywhere and you develop this personality and he's developed uh, – he developed that personality to an extraordinary degree. But it was totally built on a falsehood, on a lie and uh, an artificial personality. And what happens when you do that? You eventually become so arrogant that you can get away with anything. And so you, you, you can abuse your employees. You can, you can be sexist. You can actually say things in public that completely demean people who have ideas, people who – it wasn't just women. I mean it was just like – it was an astonishing arrogance took over. It's like the arrogant gene that he had all the time was like watered and, and tended to <laughs> by the Fox Corporation until eventually it flowered into this hideous like corpse flower and, 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 and became intolerable to Fox News even. And so – 20th Century Fox, finally, you know, the younger people in the in the industry decided, OK, maybe this is on balance. Maybe it's negative. One of the questions I'm wondering, too, just from a money perspective, um, is whether or not Bill has become uh, too expensive to keep around. Right. And not just on a, a legal front, but he's a, you know, 
News Corporation, which owns Fox News, is a multifaceted, <laughs> multi-platform company. Bill also writes, is just pumps out one garbage book after another for HarperCollins, which is also owned by News Corporation. And, you know, it's sort of, I don't know what his deal is for these books, but generally when you have a big name celebrity writing a book, you're giving them a lot of money up front. And... I mean, I don't know how many pe- how many people can be buying this, you know, killing whatever series, you know, killing Lincoln, killing whoever. I don't know who well, else is you more, believe the bestseller yeah. list. There are, yeah, yeah there more, are. right, more than more than we want to admit. But uh, if you're paying that person millions and millions of dollars up front, that being on the bestsellers list doesn't necessarily help. And however much they're paying him per year, giving him twenty five million dollars to get out of there and let in some cheaper. Um, replacement might be a good business move for them. Right. Plus, plus the, the settlements. I had the sense reading the news this week that it was the Times report that uh, X millions of dollars had been paid out in settlements. Somehow it seems like something shifted when that article came out and that figure came out. I Do think you it was think 13 that, well, million. One of, one of the accusers was a person who actually wasn't standing to make financial mm-hmm. gain. Right. She, was, I, she was able to testify to this mm-hmm. because she, wasn't, she had no gag order. But do you think, Kate, what, is what you're saying, because I think it's an interesting idea, that whatever the brand of Fox News is, the idea that you're just carrying on your payroll a guy who costs you $13 million in sexual harassment payouts makes you look like a less savvy corporation somehow? Yeah, and I and I wonder if some of the investors started asking questions. Questions arose. Well, where did the money come from? And was the corporation reporting to the investors? Were they right. being it, it transparent? Whether it's legal that they didn't say anything, but they were t- they were taking in one hundred eighteen million dollars a year in, in in income from that show. So, you know, they 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 were certainly making money. Um, I, I just do want to say that um, we have to go to a break uh, in a couple minutes. Um, first of all, I, I did know Bill when he worked uh, at uh, WFSB. I, I one time misreported a story about him because I'd heard that Adrian Bonds had thrown a chair at him. Uh, <laughs> and I called Adrian and I said, is it true that Bill O'Reilly made you so mad that you threw a chair at him? And she said, ask that question again. Um, and uh, I asked it again and she goes, no, that is not true. Years later, she came up to me and said, you know, he made me so mad I threw a chair at somebody else. I threw a chair at a producer because of Bill O'Reilly. If you'd asked the question a little bit differently, uh, I, could, I would have told you something else. <laughs> yeah. um, he, he would do stuff like I was a you know impoverished newspaper reporter uh, when I knew him. He would, in a conversation, take out a very thick money clip and, and just begin counting his money in front of me. Um, <laughs> He uh, and and so um, there's I, a clip going around of him cussing out yes, a the, producer. The, yes, that that clip from his years at Inside Edition has been around for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I made fun of him one time. I immediately got a letter from a lawyer, um, from his <laughs> lawyer, saying. You know, we understand you're misusing his name on the air or something, which is, of course, what he does all the time. But um, yet here he is intimidating a temp, right. an African American woman temp, yeah. and he's grunting and calling her. He's saying hot chocolate. Yeah. And now the the guys on right wing radio, I'm sorry, conservative talk radio are now making fun. Oh, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Hot chocolate. Ooh. Right. Uh, But here this woman needed the job. Mm -hmm. She's obviously demeaned, insulted, intimidated, and he's 
the big man, right. the big money man. I, I do think that a lot of his pose was the pose of hubris, right? That, you know, I mean, in the, way, the ways that James was saying, this, the difference between him and Tucker Carlson is, isn't that Tucker Carlson isn't walking around with kind of the obvious clockwork that's going to bring him down showing, right? The, the entire time that we've yeah. known Bill O'Reilly, it's like the bigger he got, the harder that he was going to fall. I mean, everybody understood that some version of this day would come someday. It, there might be a, a five, ten-year window of uncertainty. When would the day come? But this was very much a story that he was telling about a guy who would uh, tower arrogantly as much as possible until somebody did something about it. And, and I do think that oddly enough, even though he writes these, what I imagine are fairly terrible books that I would never read, I think he was writing another book. I think this was a book that he was writing. Yeah, we got about ten seconds. Bill O'Reilly is going to be okay. He's <laughs> over at the Vatican <laughs> this week, shaking hands with Pope Francis. Very bad and, staff work and by his, the Pope's people. And his buddy <laughs> is in the White House. Yeah. Bill Riley's going to be okay. I, I, I'm convinced the next morning the Pope was just like, you know, cussing out his staff. People going, "You didn't tell me that was that was that guy I shook hands with." Tell me next time. All right, we are indeed back with the news. As we were rolling into that segment, I forgot to uh, ask you to support this station and support the show in particular. There'll be one more uh, pledge break right at the end of the show, right after we endorse and recommend. Uh, and we're lucky enough to have our own Betsy Kaplan, along with Ray Hardman there in the studios, doing the pledge break. So it means even more somehow. And we're actually a little bit behind today. So uh, let's have uh, Betsy Kaplan uh, and Ray Hardman be the heroes uh, as we catch up. And as you sort of say, hey, we kind of like this show. Uh, assuming that's you know, what you think. Um, all right, so w- I'm fascinated by this, but I think maybe it's because I have so little uh, connection with visual arts anyway. But So uh, in uh, Medium.com, a writer and visual artist named Kate Imbach, uh, an American living in Amsterdam, has written and, and curated something called Fairy Tale by Choice, The Photographic Eye of Melania Trump. Uh, this, this is based on the fact that her, uh, I said Instagram before, but it's actually on Twitter. Uh, she's tweeted 470 photos in which she, which she appeared to have taken herself. Uh, Imbach looked at all those photos. And, and her argument is that everybody has an eye. Everybody who takes a picture has an eye. If you take 100 pictures uh, at the end of that, we'll be able to look at those pictures and say, oh, well, Teresa has a particular you know, um, eye. She has a particular kind of thing that she likes to take a photo and a particular way that she likes to take the photo. And so does James and so does Kate. So um, these Melania Trump photos, which are – well, I don't know. I found them in a very sort of chilly Ang Lee kind of way sort of mesmerizing. I really wanted some <laughs> Eric Satie music mm-hmm. to play behind them uh, as I looked at them. But Teresa, I'll let you kind of lead off our conversation. I thought they were a little boring. They're, I mean... The, the, you just undermined my whole interview. I know. I'm sorry. But for me, it was... Well, I mean, to look at my Instagram account, it's basically, basically just pictures of my dog and my cat behaving strangely. So when I see someone just taking pictures from their penthouse and uh, their various fabulous vacations, which seem to include no one and nothing, it's always just some barren landscape or a beach and her kid, and there's never any other humans in any of these pictures for the most part. It just seems sort of 
sad and boring to me. It's like she never encounters anything interesting that she's taking a picture of. It's just the same thing over and over again for some reason. Well, Kate, we can get down even to more brass tacks there. there. There's some patterns that emerge. One of them is she is often often photographing the backs of people. Sometimes this is because the Trump family seems to have a peculiar driving arrangement in which women sit in the back, men sit in the front. But when she's even photographing her son, Barron, most of the photos are of the, the back of him. He's usually doing something active, like hitting a baseball or something like that, but his, um, you don't see his face. He, his back is turned. This could be, I mean, there are a lot of perfectly good reasons for that, including maybe not wanting to have too many people know exactly what he looks like, although I think it's, I think that ship has sailed. These um, photographs, we should say, were uh, taken kind of as the campaign was brewing up. I think they started out in 2014, but the, the notion that there was going to be a campaign is certainly a reality within these photos. Um, there aren't there's one picture of her and the Donald. Um, she is partially cropped out of that photo. There's more of him than there is of her. Um, I don't know. What, uh, you're a poet, not an artist, but those go very uh, much hand in hand. What kind of poems would you be writing about these photos? Well, you know, my, my heart goes out to the the five-year-old child who was started on a modeling career by her parents and the teenager who went to the high school of design and photography. And I think about the Toni Morrison line from Sula, she was an artist in search of an art form. The photos to me are very sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very sad to me. And, um, you know, I wonder, um, is she a bird in a gilded cage or is she an artist in search of an art form or is she both? I think she's an artist who's not very good at it. (laughs) I mean, she has everything at her disposal. I mean, whatever gilded cage she might be in, like that never stopped, you know, Ivana from being out there and being, you know, bold. You know, she was what, like a ski racer or something like that? Yes, she was. Well, I mean, that, that, but Mm -hmm. there's there's a distinction that Kate's making too, Mm -hmm. which is, I think Ivana was a model as well, but uh, yeah, Ivana was a champion ski racer. She was a very outdoorsy person. Do you know, have you heard the whole story of the, the, uh, of Donald and Ivana on their date. It's, it's actually worth, I can tell it really quickly. No, I'm not sure. The first time they went on a date, or one, they'd been dating, they maybe had, this is second, third date, something like that. Um, he suggested that they go skiing. And, and you know, I mean, he's, oh. I guess, was a fairly mediocre skier. And at a certain point, she was going down a hill and she just did as like competitive skiers will do. She did a flip on her skis, you know, she flipped <laughs> and landed on her skis. And he just took off his skis and his ski boots right there in that spot and walked off um, the right. ski hill. You know, but that's a very different kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know, James. I feel like within the world of cinema, I, like, I feel like I, well, I don't know, we were talking about Lost in Translation. And what was your, uh, oh, you're, you were saying Greta Gerwig should play her. There's a way in which this feels <laughs> like we're watching stills from some kind of very icy movie. Yeah, actually, I'm sort of reminded of, of of the surrealists in the 1930s in some ways looking at those pictures as if there is a sort of life of surrealism going on there. But then you sort of you know put the other pieces together about her, which is a sort of like a really a, a void of dis- discernible personality. I'm sure she does have one, but it's very hidden. And, and, and the picture is really part of it. Uh, is like um, you could sort of put the pictures in a certain order and create a kind of surreal narrative from them. Um, 
but the oddity of the lack of faces and the lack of sort of expression in the pictures of, of something, even of objects, is almost creepy. And I was sort of reminded of um, the conservative talk show host Alex Jones who's being sued by his wife to keep him away from his children because he, they, she feels he's a danger to them. And part of the evidence is his uh, crazy conspiracy theories and his purveying of the idea that the Newtown massacre was a fake and so on. And um, the, the, his claim in court has been to say that, oh, I'm playing a character. Mm -hmm. It's just a joke. It's not really true. And it's almost like, okay, so let's say Melania has decided that that's her role is to sort of play a character. Um, maybe that's what's going on. But um, if it is, it's not in a – I don't know. It's not in an amusing or diverting way that, that has some art to it. You get the feeling of somebody who's like uh, really in refuge and when she does appear – I mean so many of the pictures of her in a public setting seem to me to have been that old-fashioned idea of being airbrushed. You know, they look like they're slightly sort of artificial looking. And then you get these pictures that she's taken herself and they're very hard to put together in any way of artifice or any kind of expression of self. It's a very strange and creepy feeling, I think. Well, but let's face it. She never expected that she was going to have to take well, on the job yeah, of First Lady of the United States. And uh, I can imagine I, – I don't blame her for staying in New York. I mean she's going to have to go to Georgetown – dinner parties with Rhodes Scholars and... Well, no, not really. <laughs> not based on anything so far, no. She was just getting the plane to go to Mar-a-Lago on the weekends. He doesn't use Camp David. There's not a lot of... You know, they don't dine with Georgetown you know, scholars and stuff like that. I mean, what's, what's interesting to me, too, is, look, all of these things are, are, are ciphers. All of these relationships are, to one degree or another, ciphers and subsequent um, and, and uh, available for subsequent historical interpretation. So that, you know, I, I don't know what we thought about Jackie in the 1960s, but I don't think we understood quite how miserable she probably was and, and, and feeling— but we loved her. Yeah, we, we loved her, and, and there was a sense anyway that, that they were able to pull off the idea of some kind of partnership. Uh, she obviously was just filling the White House with Oleg Cassino, Cassini and Pablo Casals and, you know, uh, and Tobaldi and all these. Like, it was just this—and and there was a sense that Jack, you know, kind of jockey, Navy guy way, was kind of just loping along happily at her side. And he famously said, you know, I will be forever known as the man who accompanied uh, Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. There was sort of a sense anyway of like sort of who they were. It was obviously a little bit flawed, a little bit deceptive. And as you run through, you know, whether it's Pat Nixon or Lady Bird Johnson, uh, you know, you sort of realize there are things we didn't know, ways in which they were in quite a bit of pain because of what their husbands did. Rosalind Carter, I think, actually seemed to have a pretty genuine, normal partnership with Jimmy Carter. Betty Ford obviously was the most disclosive and candid person about what it's like to be married to the man she was married to. Talk Talked about their pillow talk and all this kind of stuff. It's, like it's different every time. You know, we're just coming off the Obamas who seemed to, I think, a very special degree, like partners and like partners who really liked a lot of the same things, enjoyed a lot of the same music and culture, made the White House a place where, you know, I don't know, I'd just be watching Esperanza Spalding singing Overjoyed and a tri tribute to Stevie Wonder at the White House, you know, and, and Michelle and Barack are there just kind of digging it. There's sort of this, that there was this sense anyway that there was this real family in the White House, really the four of them plus the two dogs, 
you know. And, and now this, we've got Kid Rock and Ted Nugent <laughs> well, well, and Sarah a, Palin mocking. There's, there's that too. Mocking Hillary but Poitras. Think, but there's a very different kind of family there anyway. Yeah, James. Well, I, I, I think that the, all the people you're talking about are people who actually, in spite of all the travails and the bad things that happened to them and the tough times they faced, they did express personality in a way that made you feel like Jackie Kennedy. You felt there was an inner life there and that no matter what was going on with uh, all of the things she faced and the, the infidelity of her husband and things like that, that she had somehow – a sense of herself, a sense of that that it might be wounded, but she had a sense of confidence in self. When I look at those pictures that Melania has in that series, that all those pictures that are on that website, I just can't pick that up. Uh, I, I I don't know. It doesn't, and she doesn't talk uh, by herself. You know, like she's not sort of interviewed in a way that you feel there's a real personality there. It's like all of that is missing. That she's either hiding or she's just not interested. It's very different. I, I think it's a very different t- type of person. We, we have to switch topics uh, one more time here. But before we yeah, – actually, we should do it very soon. Well, let, let me just say I was going to push you uh, harder on it, Teresa. But, uh, but I mean one of the sort of oddly chilling things in this, this medium piece, which we'll, we'll link, it to, uh, link to it on our website if you haven't seen it already, is uh, the exact same view from Trump Tower mm-hmm. over and over again and in, in a way that could be sort of seen as a way of marking changes in the light and changes in the seasons. I mean maybe that's what it is. It, it, since there's not a lot of commenting on it, it's hard to know. Or, or is it – I mean the other possibility is that there's a kind of chilly, repetitive – robotic quality to it. There is sort of a chilly, repetitive robotic quality to it, but I also think there's just like, it's a very, you know, I used to have an apartment that had a beautiful New York City skyline view, and it is very, and at the time we didn't have, you know, I didn't have a decent camera to take good pictures of it, but if I had and just on a nightly basis was walking by and saw that skyline, I probably would have posted a ridiculous amount of pictures of that skyline view too, you know. I think we're almost giving her more credit than is necessary. She's just she's got a nice view and she takes pictures of it and she forgets that she did that 6 months ago, you know, and <laughs> which is a very easy thing to do. I'm sure if you went through my Instagram photos, you'd see you'd be like you took a picture of this plant in your garden last year too, Teresa. Why do you keep doing this? The only difference is that I have more in there and no one's paying attention to my Instagram. All right, we have just a few <laughs> minutes left. We had all kinds of things that we we thought about talking about. Serena Williams is pregnant. I've got a whole sort of direction I want to go uh, and about that someday. Uh, the end of Girls on HBO. We decided not to. The unicorn frappuccino uh, freak out at uh, Starbucks. That would take too long to explain and one of us would have to get one of them. Um, <laughs> but we do, uh, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes here very quickly with, um, you know, it's sort of hard to know how seriously to take this. They haven't actually done it. But according to USA Today, IKEA now has a business strategy, a plan to uh, take the little dining rooms, the lovely little dining rooms they have in their furniture stores, and actually break them off as restaurants, have restaurants that don't sell any furniture, uh, are just where you go to eat. Uh, Apparently, according to their research, an astounding 30% of customers go to IKEA just to have food, uh, despite the fact that there are restaurants where they could go and have food. They go there. So um, those are the families that get dragged to IKEA while somebody's going shopping and they have to wait in the restaurant. 
That could be. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'll, we'll just do hot takes around the table. I don't know. Kate, actually, you had a kind of interesting riff on like how hard it is to tell our commerce from our culture these days. Yeah, you know, I did ask that question. Is commerce culture? Is all commerce culture? And after I dipped into uh, Ikea a little bit, they're my new favorite commercial enterprise <laughs> because tomorrow they're going to be uh, – IKEA USA is going to be partnering with Goodwill Industries, I guess, for Earth Day. And they're having a furniture take back mm-hmm. and they're building solar panels in the Midwest. And the IKEA Foundation gives all this money to things I care about. So I'm good with uh, IKEA having. So go buy meatballs rest- is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I didn't get to Google to see how many calories an I- IKEA meal is gonna be, but I'm I'm with IKEA, and I guess their uh, pop-ups in uh, London and uh, Paris have been successful. So I'm willing to give it a try. The restaurants you're talking yes. about. Okay. Good time for uh, like. A- well, I once went to I. I, my cousin and I were at an Ikea like in the middle of the week when no one else was there. It was kind of late and we stopped into the actual restaurant part mm-hmm. because we were hungry and we hadn't eaten. And there was nothing I was willing to eat in there. <laughs> so I don't – you know, I've heard tales that these are – these. Swedish meatballs are delicious. I've heard it from Swedish people, so I assume they're pretty good. But when I went to the cafeteria, I was like, I'm – it was the end of the day, you know, maybe it wasn't their fault. They just weren't restocking things, but there was nothing remotely edible in my view. James, you got 30 <laughs> well, seconds I, if you want I, I think that one of the things that's going on here is reinventing the store and getting the store a new look because it has a certain image of the past 25, 30 years that I think they're trying to um, refresh Perhaps by having the restaurants. I mean, I can't. If if I, w- I I agree with Kate that they do a lot of good things, and they really have raised some of the issues about like recycling and trying to t- steer us away from the idea that okay, it's time to buy something new and you throw out the old. Whereas they're actually trying to get people to repurpose things and get things to be used by, you know, actually sell them, uh, get the partnership with Goodwill. I mean, Goodwill is, is thinking about stuff like that, too, and, and, and actually diminishing the amount of stuff that gets thrown away. So I support them on that. And if, if I, I feel sort of indifferent about the restaurants, but my guess is that what it's about is getting a, a fresh look in the market that makes people think of them differently. I'm predicting they won't work, but I have like a long explanation. We don't have time for long explanations. <laughs> so we'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll do some endorsements. American dream come true in New Jersey. They got a goddamn Swedish parade. Ikea. Just some milk and some pine and a handful of Norsemen. Ikea. Today's episode of The Pants Factor was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Glenn Beck. Access to Betsy Kaplan's sad, lonely Instagram account is by password only. We'll be back on Monday with a scramble about the weekend's news. And now, back to Colin. All of Betsy's pictures are about the way that we treat her here. Uh, All right, so, uh, Teresa, what would you like to recommend to the world? I'm reading a book called Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange History of Integration in America by Tanner Colby. It's a really interesting look at integration, but from a very specific point of view, at very granular levels, a specific town, this neighborhood that, you know, sort of 
epitomizes a certain trend. It's and it's it's kind of fun. It's not a boring sort of dry historical read. It's re- I highly recommend it. James, what have you got for us? Um, I wanted to uh, recommend uh, Mother Jones magazine, which has been become uh, I've always subscribed since the very beginning, but it's been incredible in the past few months how they've developed their investigative journalism. And there's a couple of journalists, uh, Shane Bauer and Wes Enzina, uh, just recently talking about the uh, extreme right and the demonstrations that have been taking place in Berkeley. Um, it's just such a pleasure to see real journalism and people supporting that with with the investigative fund, and uh, they have a great website, motherjones.com. All right, and Kate Russian. All right, April is Poetry Month, and I want to endorse Arts Cafe Mystic, which is every month at the Mystic Museum of Art. And tonight it's Katha Pollitt. I'm going to see her. People know her from The Nation and Rhonda Ward, who's the new Poet Laureate of New London. And I have just started Olio by Taihimba Jess, my Cave Canem poetry buddy. He just won a Pulitzer Prize for Olio, O-L-I-O, from Wave Books, and that's Tayimba Jess. Um, I will quickly uh, say that uh, James's movie theater, Trinity Sydney Studio, one of the wonderful things they do is to uh, do these live simulcasts uh, from uh, typically from London uh, of plays. Uh, yesterday I was there for the simulcast of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead featuring Daniel Radcliffe and somebody who should be just as famous as Daniel Radcliffe. I think his name is Josh McGuire, but I'm not sure. They're both really good, but this other guy is actually better. Anyway, you can see it again at 1 o'clock on Sunday. It's really worth it. I mean, it really is... I don't know, kind of break up your Sunday a little bit, but it, it really is actually worth seeing it. If you like stop art, if you're ready for those kinds of challenges. I mean, this is not for sissies in any sense of the word. I mean, it really is. There's a lot of brainy stuff that you have to go through. Uh, so I'll say that. I'll also say uh, maybe in a less brainy way, but every bit is delightful. I finally caught up with Mike Verbiglia's Netflix special, Thank God for Jokes. It's really good, and it has some things in it that I've thought about and talked about over the years he, being Mike Birbiglia, has managed to make those things considerably funnier than I have ever been able to make them. But I think he and I actually had a conversation at one point on this show about at least one of the things that's in the special. So go see it and uh, like just dial it up on your Netflix. It's really worth seeing. Um, I, and I'm going to just end by just completely embarrassing myself. This is like the latest to the party endorsement ever. But I've gone from the kind of person who maybe made fun of people who were obsessed with the Hamilton soundtrack to the person who's obsessed with the Hamilton soundtrack and who's getting on other people's nerves, particularly the person I live with because I'm walking around singing the songs all the time with my earbuds in and stuff like that. But it is, it's an amazing thing. It's like Stephen Sondheim wrote three musicals or something. Anyway, we have to go. Thanks to everybody. Um, Here comes Betsy and Ray to ask you to pledge. Please do, do, do pledge. It really helps our show if you pledge right now. Hey, nine-year-old Kion. Yeah? In 2017, Bill O'Reilly gets fired, and Al Franken is in Congress, and Harriet Tubman is set to replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. Whoa, politics in 2017 sounds awesome. No. No.